Savitri, Book Two, The Book of the Traveler of the Worlds, Canto Four, The Kingdoms of the Little Life. This is part three of four parts, and it's on pages 141 to 146. Aswapati, the great yogi king, is following life's descent. Life has gone into the inconscience of matter. And now he's following her eventual rise through the stages of human evolution. So far in the king's travels, all that can be seen on the surface has been degradation and foulness and ignorant movements and apparent failures, one after the other. But the king's spiritual vision can also see the divine origin of this apparently aimless and hopeless process. He saw the weak birth of a tremendous force and the mighty spirit which is concealed in nature. Now, in this part of the canto, he sees a fierier breath of waking life and the rise of strange creations of a thinking sense. A seeking power found out its road to form. The force of creation, working by the light of ignorance, began her animal experiment. Sri Aurobindo calls it an order of intelligent littleness. There came creatures that were conscious, but only alive to what is outward, not to anything inward. Now Sri Aurobindo describes the little life for us. Beings were there who wore a human form, but did not know who they were or why they lived. They only identified themselves with the spirit's outward shell, the body. They worked only for outward wants. They wanted to enjoy and to survive. We see a creation where only life could think, and not the mind. Only sense could feel, and not the soul. The beings who wore a human form turned in grooves of animal desires. And here, instinct was formed. Sri Aurobindo says, only was lit some heat of the flame of life. By the things he says in this part of the canto, we can see that Sri Aurobindo is speaking about a stage in human evolution where the individual soul is completely behind the veil. The larger soul, the self, which is the divine spark at the center of each of us and which builds around it our individual soul, what Mother and Sri Aurobindo call the psychic being, it is there doing its work. But the psychic being is not formed. So since it's behind the veil, its influence of higher things is not yet active in the being. Man has not achieved the place where the mind has any development at all. This evolution has not yet come. That will begin to come later. Sri Aurobindo has written a sonnet showing how, even with mind, man has far to go. It tells the same story that he's telling us here, but it tells it in another way. He called it man, the thinking animal, a trifling unit in a boundless plan amidst the enormous insignificance of the unpeopled cosmos, fire world, dance, earth, as by accident, engendered man, a creature of his own gray ignorance, a mind half shadow and half gleam, 
a breath that wrestles captive in a world of death to live some lame brief years. Yet his advance, attempt of a divinity within, a consciousness in the inconscient light to realize its own supernal light confronts the ruthless forces of the unseen. Aspiring to Godhead from insensible clay, he travels slow-footed towards the eternal day. We've read now what Sri Aurobindo wrote about life entering matter and that first effect that it's having. We have this poem, Man the Thinking Animal, where he writes that now the divinity within is aspiring and working to realize its own supernal light. So we have the past and we have the present, as he describes it. Then we have an entry from the record of yoga, Sri Aurobindo's own diary. He's speaking of supramental life energy here. And he's saying that supramental life energy has to come into his own body in every part of it. So here we see the future stage of life and the progress of evolution. There are a number of small entries in a section titled December 1926 to 6 January 1927. And he doesn't give specific dates for each one, but he marks out the paragraphs. So here are the first three entries that are are separately marked. When the fullness of the supramental energy is in the body, then all difficulties will be reduced to nothingness. It is the life energy in all the body, not only in the seven centers, that is demanded. Once in all the seven centers, it cannot fail to pour through all the body. It must take possession of all the cells, the flesh, the muscles, bones, blood, nerves, skin, hair. Then the body will be ready for transformation. The life energy to be firmly founded today in the last centers, the rest to follow in the next three days. And then here's the second entry. These things are authoritative suggestions. It depends on the energy and the vessel of mind, life, and body, subject to the divine sanction from above, whether they are fulfilled in the time fixed or have to wait for a later period. And then later on, he writes the third entry, and unfortunately, we don't know the time gaps. He says, If founded, all the remnants of the old illnesses and pains and bad habits of the body will disappear altogether, and no new ones will be possible. So we can see with all these writings that Sri Aurobindo's consciousness was at one and the same time in the past, the present, and the future and that includes the past and present and the future of human evolution. He refers to it again and again in his diary, and he uses a Sanskrit word. He calls it trikaldrishti. Very basically, it means three seeings, seeing the past, seeing the present, and seeing the future at the same time. And throughout the record of yoga, he records the progress of his attainment of this three seeings, the Trikaldrishti. So now we're going to go into the past with him. And I suspect that he writes this also to tell us that these things still exist. Um, last week, 
he was saying that things were existing in him that he was talking about in the second section of this canto. So we're in part three of the kingdoms of the little life, and this is what he writes. Then came a fierier breath of waking life. There arose from the dim gulf of things strange creations of a thinking sense, existences half real and half dream. A life was there that hoped not to survive. Beings were born who perished without trace, events that were a formless drama's limbs, and actions driven by a blind creature will. A seeking power found out its road to form. Patterns were built of love and joy and pain and symbol figures for the moods of life. An insect hedonism fluttered and crawled and basked in a sunlit nature's surface thrills. And dragon raptures, python agonies, crawled in the marsh and mire and licked the sun. Huge armored strengths shook a frail quaking ground, great puissant creatures with a dwarfish brain. And pygmy tribes imposed their small life drift in a dwarf model of humanity. Nature now launched the extreme experience and master point of her design's caprice, luminous result of her half-conscious climb on rungs twixt her sublimities and grotesques to massive from infinitesimal shapes to a subtle balancing of body and soul, to an order of intelligent littleness around him in the moment beats of time the kingdom of the animal self arose where deed is all and mind is still half-born and the heart obeys a dumb unseen control. The force that works by the light of ignorance her animal experiment began crowding with conscious creatures her world scheme. But to the outward only were they alive, only they replied to touches and surfaces and to the prick of need that drove their lives. A body that knew not its soul within, there lived and longed, had wrath and joy and grief. A mind was there that met the objective world as if a stranger or enemy at its door. Its thoughts were needed by the shocks of sense. It captured not the spirit in the form. It entered not into the heart of what it saw. It looked not for the power behind the act. It studied not the hidden motive in things, nor strove to find the meaning of it all. Beings were there who wore a human form. Absorbed, they lived in the passion of the scene, but knew not who they were or why they lived. Content to breathe, to feel, to sense, to act, life had for them no aim save nature's joy and the stimulus and delight of outer things. Identified with the spirit's outward shell, they worked for the body's wants. They craved no more. The veiled spectator, watching from their depths, fixed not his inward eye upon himself, nor turned to find the author of the plot. He saw the drama only, and the stage. There was no brooding stress of deeper sense. 
the burden of reflection was not born, mind looked on nature with unknowing eyes, adored her boons, and feared her monstrous strokes. It pondered not on the magic of her laws. It thirsted not for the secret wells of truth, but made a register of crowding facts and strung sensations on a vivid thread. It hunted and it fled and sniffed the winds or slothed inert in sunshine and soft air. It sought the engrossing contacts of the world, but only to feed the surface sense with bliss. These felt life's quiver in the outward touch. They could not feel, behind the touch, the soul. To guard their form of self from nature's harm, to enjoy and to survive, was all their care. The narrow horizon of their days was filled with things and creatures that could help and hurt. The world's values hung upon their little self. Isolated, cramped in the vast unknown, to save their small lives from surrounding death, they made a tiny circle of defense against the siege of the huge universe. They preyed upon the world and were its prey, but never dreamed to conquer and be free. Obeying the world power's hints and firm taboos, a scanty part they drew from her rich store. There was no conscious code and no life plan. The patterns of a little group fixed a traditional behavior's law. Ignorant of soul, save as a wraith within, tied to a mechanism of unchanging lives and to a dull usual sense and feelings beat, they turned in grooves of animal desire. In walls of stone fenced round, they worked and warred, did by a banded selfishness a small good, or wrought a dreadful wrong and cruel pain on sentient lives, and thought they did no ill. Ardent from the sack of happy, peaceful homes, and gorged with slaughter, plunder, rape, and fire, they made of human selves their helpless prey. A drove of captives led to lifelong woe, or torture a spectacle made, and holiday, mocking or thrilled by their torn victims' pangs, admiring themselves as titans and as gods, proudly they sang their high and glorious deeds, and praised their victory and their splendid force. An animal in the instinctive herd, pushed by life's impulses, forced by common needs, each in his own kind saw his eagle's glass, all served the aim and action of the pack. Those like himself, by blood or custom kin, to him were parts of his life, his adjunct selves, his personal nebulas constituent stars, satellite companions of his solar eye, a master of his life's environment, a leader of a huddled human mass hurting for safety on a dangerous earth, he gathered them round him as if minor powers to make a common front against the world, or weak and soul on an indifferent earth as a fortress for his undefended heart, or else to heal his body's loneliness. And others in his kind he sensed a foe, an alien unlike force to shun and fear, a stranger and adversary to hate and slay or he lived as lives the solitary brute, 
At war with all, he bore his single fate. Absorbed in the present act, the fleeting days, none thought to look beyond the hour's gain, or dreamed to make this earth a fairer world, or felt some touch divine surprise his heart, the gladness that the fugitive moment gave, the desire grasped, the bliss, the experience won, movement and speed and strength were joy enough, and bodily longing shared, and quarrel and play and tears and laughter and the need called love. In war and clasp, these life wants joined the all-life, wrestlings of a divided unity, inflicting mutual grief and happiness in ignorance of the self, forever one, arming its creatures with delight and hope, a half-awakened nescience struggled there to know by sight and touch the outside of things. Instinct was formed in memory's crowded sleep. The past lived on as in a bottomless sea. Inverting into half-thought the quickened sense, she felt around for truth with fumbling hands, clutched to her the little she could reach and seize and put aside in her subconscious cave. So must the dim being grow in light and force and rise to his higher destiny at last. Look up to God and round at the universe and learn by failure and progress by fall and battle with the environment and doom. By suffering discover his deep soul and by possession grow to his own vasts. Halfway she stopped and found her path no more. Still, Nothing was achieved but to begin. Yet, finished seemed the circle of her force. Only she had beaten out sparks of ignorance. Only the life could think, and not the mind. Only the sense could feel, and not the soul. Only was lit some heat of the flame of life. Some joy to be. Some rapturous leaps of sense. All was an impetus of half-conscious force, a spirit sprawling, drowned in dense life-foam, a vague self-grasping at the shape of things, behind all, moved, seeking for vessels to hold, a first raw vintage of the grapes of God, on earth's mud, a spilth of the supernal bliss, intoxicating the stupefied soul and mind, a heady wine of rapture, dark and crude, dim, uncast yet into spiritual form, obscure inhabitant of the world's blind core and unborn godhead's will, a mute desire. (laughs) ¶¶